Kiriako Spirou is an editor, writer, content creator, pianist, and composer based in Athens, Greece. After studying music in his hometown of Limassol, and then musicology in Athens, he moved to the Netherlands to complete a master's course in music design at the Utrecht School for the Arts. He is currently the deputy editor of Yatsu.com and works for various publications as a freelancer. He is also the founding editor of Und Athens, a new alternative art guide for Athens. Kiriakos Spiru, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you. So you're really one of these aborescent artists. <laughs> but we're talking there, we're going back to your obsession for printed matter. Mm-hmm. Now you've, you publish Und Athens. Mm-hmm. You have also you know, worked on other publications, a variety of publications. You're editor and contributor to. Maybe if you could just go through some of these projects that you've been working on most recently. So yeah, over here I've brought copies of the publications I have written and published in the past three years. So we have the catalogue of the first exhibition I curated. Mm -hmm. This happened in March uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. So I I invited a group of Greek artists to participate in this group exhibition I curated. The title was And the Work of Our Hands. It's a little quote from Hannah Arendt's book, The Human Condition. And it was all about how labor and the repetition of labor can give art- artworks and whether that has some sort of aesthetic value and what's the political in that, to be an artist that works repetitively or working on your own or doing things that are basically patterns and right. not figurative. So um, there's an essay on that in the catalog and then there are like photos of the works that were part of the exhibition. Yes, we should say that the participating artists were yeah, we had Vasilis Botulas, Panos Famelis, Maria Mavropoulou, Stratista Vlaridis, and Panagiotis Vulgaris. They're all Greek artists. And what was your process of selecting them? At that time, I had an interest in these kinds of patterns and uh, this idea of repetitive gesture, and especially um, the work of art as the result of gesture and not of, you know, meaning or... Like the content of the work is basically the result of a physical gesture that repeats itself. So I I did some research and I found a group of artists that actually work in that way. So it's either like etching abstract patterns or this particular artist, Panos Famelis, he creates a grid that is like three meters wide. And then he traces the canvas based on his breathing. So each time he exhales, he draws like a line of and then another one and then another one until this sort of like creates this nebulous kind of shape. Right. You can see on the surface of the work the process of the body ma- making it. It's like a tracing of the movement instead of just, I don't know, like representing an idea or something figurative. And this does seem to flow out of your... You're still a composer, but your earlier concentration on composing music, working with choreographers, dancers, mm-hmm. th- that flowed from that. Could you speak about why? You well, I think this particular exhibition was, it, it definitely had to do with my close relationship to dance. Mm-hmm. I have collaborated a lot with uh, choreographers for mm-hmm. contemporary dance theater. And I was often devising collaborators, so we would create the tasks and the content of the choreography together. We would exchange the tasks, 
we would assign each, each other's tasks or create the score together, create the narrative together. And also because I'm a musician, I'm a pianist, and uh, which is like a very physically demanding instrument. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most like mobile instruments mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. You, you have this like geography we call, mm-hmm. we call it the geography of the piano. So I think this exhibition links to my own experience as a performer and as a composer for dance and the relationship that music has with the body. So I was sort of tracing this idea of the body producing things or making the gesture of production visible on the mm-hmm. canvas or on the surface of the work. So all these you will see, they're like small repetitive gestures that give like a bigger hole yes. that works in the exhibition. It, yeah, that's one of the difficulties with one of the beautiful things about dance and also about music is that it's ab- maybe dance is less abstract, but it's ephemeral. Mm. <laughs> I mean, and okay, you can video it, but mm-hmm. it passes through us. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so that's interesting that how do you how do you memorialize it or how do you make it concrete and make it hold still mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's an interesting solution to that impermanence mm-hmm. and another way that you hold still thoughts or you hold still memories is through writing and i know that's a significant part of your activity now yes mm-hmm. it's been a, a big part of what i do for many years mm-hmm. i remember my supervisors at my masters i did my masters in utrecht Yes. at the Utrecht School for the Arts. I was doing electroacoustic music for my masters and always my supervisors asked me like why do you write so many words <laughs> about your music? Yeah. Because I would turn in like a score with notes, mm-hmm. yeah. a musical notation and at the end there would be like a 1000 word essay explaining yeah. what I was doing uh-huh. or how it should be played or yeah. what was the inspiration behind it. So there was always like this text uh-huh. That was, for me, it was part of the work, like mm-hmm. writing the concept or developing a concept or explaining the idea in words was, was always part of my process. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, writing words using language was always part of uh, what I do, even in a musical way. Yeah. I've, I've brought here, it's a draft of the score I did back in 2011. I was working on a mini opera. Oh. For, for one singer and electronics and I was developing like visual scores for it and uh, what I want to show you is that the libretto was very visual as oh, well wow. so I was using language in a visual way mm-hmm. to sort of like inspire the performers to also improvise and then get a, a specific mood mm-hmm. from, from each scene Already, so, it's very even musical, visual, um, spatial. Yeah, uh, I, w- I was using the yeah the space, the I visual. I should perhaps attributes. describe this because it's mm. not the words are forming forming a cathedral in this case, and another a very large fish. The text, the libretto. I mean, you could read also the text because that would I'm seeing it, but they're not seeing it. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, or in this instance, like I was taking these very geometric shapes. And I was trying to create relationships between different types of volume. Also to create memories related to previous scenes. Like here you can see the cathedral, it's at the very back. Mm -hmm. So it's like a reference to a previous scene. All this to say like I was treating language in an almost... I I was deconstructing the language. So 
if I had recordings of the performance here, you would not be able to tell what the singer was saying. But I was oh, using I these texts as a basis to then deconstruct the words and use just the sounds. Okay, so they made a sound. So then in the performance of it, would those words, it seemed like it'd be very effective if they were projected at some point, if, it, if you need to make sense of the words. This was mostly like the way I communicate with the performers mm -hmm. and then the result was something else. Mm -hmm. But so you wouldn't be able to make sense of the words in the performance itself? Some of them that were like important for the meaning, they would be audible, but the rest, I, I was mostly using these as a way to to explain to the performer what I wanted to the feelings know, they need to come in or to develop material. Yeah, this whole process eventually became part of a PhD that I never finished. Mm -hmm. I started researching during my masters mm -hmm. how I, as a composer, can work in interdisciplinary groups mm -hmm. and how I can influence a group process in a way that can be shared by all. So what sort of instructions or what sort of notation should I be using or should I be developing in order mm -hmm. to enable and facilitate this collaboration in order for something common and collaborative to emerge? So that was part of my research and I tried different kinds of scores or types of notation to be able to do that. I think it's very interesting and also not just for the collaborators, the performers or the behind the scenes people who make the sets, but also for everyone experiences, those in the audience experience a performance in different ways. So, mm. you know, I was recently at an opera and the person I went with was just, when it was over, was just commenting on the sets and it was just the music was music was good but the sets so everyone experiences a performance mm. in different ways and by having something like this that can be shared even with the audience mm. it brings in their different ways of seeing listening feeling you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. it's, it's so bizarre the way people can have the same experience but a vastly different one mm -hmm. yeah 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 it's definitely multifaceted and mm -hmm. i think that's what's fascinating with the experience of art and creativity mm -hmm. like every person takes away something different mm -hmm. but something is shared we share something but we all take something different from that something and i think mm -hmm. it's a really beautiful thing mm -hmm. to acknowledge and to respect that the person next to you is experiencing something slightly different than you or maybe he's having different thoughts than you but you're both sharing the same moment mm -hmm. it is beautiful i often think it also brings us back to this state of innocence or childhood or the mm. dream you know that's that's what i like about it as well so this is like the score of the quintet mm -hmm. i wrote as a student mm -hmm. back in athens in 2010 mm -hmm. and it won an award at the, um, the annual composers competition in greece it's a very conventional score it's conventional european notation for mm -hmm. five instruments i mean you could give this to any classically trained musician Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe or the world and they would be able to play it. There's nothing uh, radical about the notation. The unique thing here is that what precedes it, it's like this research folder where was basically what I tried to do was to create a, a work of music based on uh, a work of architecture. Mm -hmm. So I took this very famous building uh, called the Vitra House in Basel I found this building in Wallpaper magazine. Mm -hmm. 
which as you can see it's like small houses stacked on top of each other yeah and they're like bars they're like elongated houses stacked on top of each other and when you saw that it's so when I saw that I, I immediately thought that this has uh, a dramaturgy this has mm -hmm. an inner concept that I would really like to explore mm -hmm. and what I also liked is the fact that the architects have designed this building so that it can be visited in one single line so you can enter and visit all the rooms and exit mm -hmm. in in one continuous and these are separate so, dwellings so they're, they're a showroom they're okay. a show they're like a museum yeah for me, music is always linear. I, I was trained in that way. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it goes through time and it's linear. So to to have a linear experience of architecture was something that really fascinated me mm -hmm. in this building. So then I started studying. And the architects were Muron uh, and Herzog and Muron. I embarked on this whole research, like decomposing the building basically. <laughs> and uh, I did a lot of research on the plants. I found the plants online. There's a whole Train process yourself in architecture. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, be able, to be able to create like these graphic scores that would then enable me to, to transform the building into music based on different parameters. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I should try to do something with it that architecture cannot, which is to basically decompose the building from the bottom up. Okay. So I created like an imaginary model of the building and the structure of the musical piece basically evolves in such a way that first the foundations disappear and then the first floor disappears and then the second floor disappears. So this whole building sort of evaporates from the bottom up, All right. which is something that architecture cannot do, but music can. So I was trying yeah. to, to do that to the score. It's very interesting because it's really... And, and a tribute, and I want to say elegy, but it's it's something that's giving honor to the spirit of a building. Mm. Or I imagine how people would pass through it. Mm -hmm. And I imagine if you did a whole series, you have you've done on other buildings. Yes. Ah, they would be very flattered to see an operatic performance, <laughs> particularly and the unveiling of the building with a big. Have you tried this? No, no, I haven't. Uh, I mean, like uh, in a museum or something, they break the ground and they have... <laughs> and the, they have the, <laughs> yes. the performance. I did a similar process with a choreographer for the Acropolis Museum here in Athens. And that was performed? I didn't know about that. Yes, it, it was uh, a musical score for a dance performance where we did a mapping of the museum mm -hmm. and I based the score on the light conditions in the museum. Oh yeah, they're wonderful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. so depending on the amount of light or where the light comes from in each room, mm -hmm. I created some parameters which I then used to, to develop the, the musical score. And the score was then recorded and mm -hmm. was used for a dance performance. Wow. And they did that in the Acropolis, the dance performance? It, it was uh, many years ago and it was very difficult. I mean, now the museum, the Acropolis Museum is much more open mm -hmm. to other arts and to other events. But back at the time, although we were in dialogue with the museum, mm -hmm. yeah. it was not possible to do that. Yeah. Only outside and outside wouldn't, wouldn't really work for us. So mm -hmm. we did it at a small theatre. Right.
it's a lovely idea and see this is what I really want to understand and I, we were talking before you know I have a composer friend he also like he looks at paintings and he hears music and you see light conditions and you hear music I can sometimes understand it looking at paintings and I might imagine a story the concept of hearing music out of something static it takes a special ability to listen that way I'm not sure if it's an ability or if it's a way to um, to see the world. Mm-hmm. For me, when I see an image or mm-hmm. a painting or a building, I immediately see patterns, rhythms, I see volumes, I see textures. Mm-hmm. And in music, we use all those words as metaphors for the music, for the sound, because yeah. sound doesn't have texture, it doesn't have volume. It has... It has <laughs> It has a volume as a loud and soft, yes, it but it doesn't spatial. have spatial volume. So all these attributes of the physical world, we use them metaphorically in music. So I think from my training as a musician, as a classical pianist, and then as a composer, I was used to using those words in describing my work and developing my work. When you see like a, a surface that is full of information, for example, then for me, I, I see the rhythms, I see the patterns, and immediately that gives me a sound. It's interesting because then I was just I was just having an interview with Lorenda Ramu and that at the moment you know her your friends <laughs> so at the moment at the NASA Center they just had a performance that was based on speaking of hearing music and patterns like Twitter mm-hmm. feed. Mm. I that's very interesting. They're converting Twitter feed to an algorithm, but it's done with a machine. So you're, mm. I don't like to call minds machines because I think mm. they're organic, but you're, you, how you process the world, it happens automatically. You don't have to write an algorithm, but it's producing mm-hmm. it. And, and how do you, that's something that came to you naturally. It's not something that you trained in yourself. You know. No, it's something that I felt happening and mm-hmm. I, I followed. Right. And I always had love and admiration for architecture yes. and design. I think my love for the visual arts came mm. through design and yeah. architecture. I think mo- maybe because I'm really attracted to things that are made to be functional, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, a well-designed chair mm-hmm. or a well-designed building. I think design was my entry point into this whole world of beautiful objects, yes. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I sort of like started playing with it mm-hmm. and through my collaboration with other artists, mm-hmm. visual artists, architects, I sort of like became more familiar with that world and yeah, eventually it became something that influenced my own work a lot. Yes, and we should speak about, you grew up in Cyprus mm-hmm. and the artists in your family or creatives in your family? Or Not how? really, no. no. <laughs> what were they? My parents uh, were civil servants. My father worked at the port in Limassol and my mother was a nurse. I think the closest we have as a family to the arts is like my my father used to play the saxophone. Well, <laughs> and he uh, sings very well. Yes. <laughs> he didn't so, allow himself to follow it probably, as much. Yes. yes. Well, I, I would say that that is artistic. He must be very happy for the way you have you know branched out into all these disciplines Mm -hmm. it's um especially my father he never objected and Mm -hmm. he was always very supportive in Mm -hmm. his own way my mother was she was also very supportive Mm -hmm. and 
she says she is my biggest fan <laughs> from, from a child. But of course, she was the one that was always worried about, you know, when would I get a proper job? That, that kind of that kind yeah. of discussions. But they were always very supportive and they did not bring any objection when I told them, like, I want to study music. I, I had from an early age a love for letters, a love mm-hmm. for writing. So they tried to push me into like literature or study a language mm-hmm. and but at the time I said I'm going to be a musician so mm-hmm. um, I went into music music studies instead. But that's interesting and we sort of touched on it that you know when you have these abilities in different disciplines and even when you know your musical ability draws on another discipline or you have this ability to synthesize is how do you choose which way to go mm-hmm. you know is that that becomes a difficult thing you can go in many directions i think it's inevitable for me like whenever i have to solve a problem or mm-hmm. to deliver something it becomes an issue of composition mm-hmm. i treat almost all my projects as a composition project like mm-hmm. i will collect my material i will analyze it and then I will start composing it based on a concept or a formula or like a little score that I have in my mind. Even if it's like a very commercial project, because I've also done a lot of projects in branding and mm-hmm. more like commercial marketing stuff. Yes. As a writer, I've collaborated. I mean, I've written a copy for some big hotels mm-hmm. and travel agents. I've worked at one of the biggest branding agencies in Greece for mm-hmm. a year. And I, I quit that job one month ago. Oh, okay. So you're free again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Almost, yes. Yeah. I, I found a part-time job at a gallery as a uh-huh. curator. Yes. So I decided to, to take the leap and yeah. uh, leave the nine to five and uh-huh. try something else. But so it's a permanent curator because there's, it's not a temporary curator. It's a per- permanent place in yes. the gallery. And I'm very interested in this concept. I know you've interviewed also Hans Ulrich Obrist. It's this <laughs> idea of the, and he's also participating in the creative process, of the curator as artist. I know some don't like to accept that role, but you're evidently an artist in other disciplines. But what do you think of the, the curator as artist? Well, I'm going to talk first on a personal level. Sure, it's yeah. a big contradiction in my work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also an ethical issue oh, in I the know. work. For me, when I feel there's a conflict, when I approach visual artists mm-hmm. to contribute their work to mm-hmm. an exhibition, and then I treat the exhibition as a compositional project of mine. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I've never had any objection mm-hmm. from the artists that I have collaborated so far. But in the end, it, it all turns out to be like this whole system or this complete installation of works. Mm-hmm. I always work in a way that they are all very consistent mm-hmm. and they all talk to each other. I treat my exhibitions as one installation instead mm-hmm. of an exhibition of different works. As I said... Not, none of the artists that I have collaborated so far have objected to that. But for me, it's the way I work, I guess. Like, I treat the space and the objects in the space as uh, parts of a whole. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily as a more academic kind of exhibition where one work is next to the other and mm-hmm. they have sort of like different stories to tell. Mm-hmm. When I'm preparing an exhibition, I always select the works in a way that they work together as an installation. Mm-hmm. I think one of the projects that I want to try out is to curate an exhibition with objects that are not made by artists, like you know, found objects or natural mm-hmm. objects, things that don't have a signature. Yeah. But then you you fill the gallery with these objects, and it looks like an exhibition, 
or it borrows the exhibition format, but then it's not really a gallery exhibition. It's more like an installation of... These things we should notice that we haven't been noticing. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is interesting. And I, somebody told me I was a curator. I didn't even know that, but I guess I am. But, and, and when you say it's ethical, I don't know how, if you're an artist that you pretend not to be an artist, then it's kind of like false to pretend Mm. you're gathering things or you're inviting people into something. But anyway, I don't even consider myself as a curator. I just consider about someone who invites people into things. Mm. <laughs> I think it's the same with me. Yes. I feel myself more as a facilitator. Yeah. Sometimes taking the role of the group leader. Yeah. Like someone who sort of like organizes things. Yeah, someone who's just more mm. involved in mm-hmm, it than, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Rather than the curator. I, I've also, I, I've, I didn't have any formal training in curating. So yes. I have not been like... Uh, trained in that mentality or uh, what you know a museum curator is supposed to do you know yeah it really this whole idea like my my passion for creating is it's really an innate passion and I it's a learning process as I understand yeah, yeah yeah it's also a learning process for me but it also comes from this obsession that I have to make things visible and to organize things in space and uh, with this when you listen music do you imagine uh, building Oh, oh, it's just ah, it, it, actually, it doesn't work the other way around. When I listen to music, it's mostly, it's more like film. It's like yeah. I, see, I see faces, I see people, I see emotions, interactions. There's sometimes space involved, but usually it's, it's like daydreaming, you know? When mm-hmm. I listen to music, I see images. Mm-hmm. I see images. And there's a, a movement. Yeah. Yeah, there's movement and there's yeah. interaction, like yeah, like human interaction, like yeah. emotions changing and It'd be nice, yeah, if if you could see a, a building being made by when you saw music. I had suggested that mm. to a friend, that friend of mine who's a composer. I said that he should do something on New York and the building of the different the buildings and the mm-hmm. bridges. You could see them, you know, particularly the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm-hmm. You can see the strings mm-hmm. being like an instrument, mm-hmm. you know, being made. But he didn't take the idea because he likes to <laughs> he likes to own all his ideas or whatever. He did. <laughs> he was doing something else. So it's interesting how you know, not having you had your father who had musical abilities, but not having a lot of artists around you necessarily. But were there certain teachers that were very important to you? Certain books, certain works of art. Yeah, I grew up with European music. My parents didn't like it, but <laughs> I remember like as a, as a teenager, I would go to the to the CD shop then. Oh, so ancient. <laughs> you didn't even remember the little things. I have to explain oh, to her. Days. I draw a picture. <laughs> Actually, the, the, first, the first recording I bought was no. like a tape. I'm the first recording I bought was the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, oh, right. and it was on a tape. Yeah. <laughs> and then I started buying CDs. No, I was listening to a lot of classical music mm-hmm. as I was growing up. I was reading a lot of books. My mother really encouraged me to read, and she kept buying me books, random books from mm-hmm. different authors, Greek translations. And she loves reading, so she passed that on to me as well. But, you know, my sister was a professional athlete for many years, and then she turned to physics. My brother is more like a technical geek. He likes computers and uh, networks and things like that. 
I mean, I had a teacher, you know, growing up as a child, I had a piano teacher and she was very encouraging, but I wouldn't say that it, she was like, you know, an, an example for me or something. Mm -hmm. For me, music was mostly was something that I sort of started doing at a very young age because my parents sent me to the conservatory as one does, like people send their children to I have to do music and ballet and uh, sports and this and that. So as part of that, I went to, to learn the piano and it's sort of like I liked it very much. And I spent some 15 years learning the piano and nonstop. So it became something like a habit or like my, my voice. My voice was the piano. I think I started really being critical about music or what I want to do with music. After I graduated from, from the university, I started working as an accompanist for ballet schools. And that was the first time that music became my profession. Of course, this relationship between music and the body within the, the ballet classroom really opened up my understanding of music and rhythm. Working there sort of like opened different possibilities for me. Yeah, I think it took me a lot of time to realize or to understand what I was doing and why I wanted to do it. But for the rest, I think I was inspired mostly, you know, by non-musicians, like architects, visual artists, people from the dance theater world. The musicians that inspired me were more conceptual, like John Cage, Shalman Palestine, like people who were very minimalist, very focused on ideas, like the, the essence of music. And so do you feel now you'll always be oscillating between the different mediums or, you know, are you looking for a place where you feel settled in one medium or do you never want to settle in a medium? I'm interested in many different things and I think the interest that I have in these things is equal. Mm -hmm. So I like to jump from one to the other and explore. I still feel that I'm exploring many things. They all have a common thread, which is how do we perform and how do we collaborate? Mm -hmm. So I think everything I do has to do with how we share experience, how we collaborate, how we communicate as people, as performers, as friends. My name is Sophia Luongo, and I'm an associate podcast producer with The Creative Process. I'm a recent graduate of the University of Texas, where I studied anthropology, Italian, and museum studies. I've really enjoyed hearing Kiriakou Spiru's descriptions of his work and how he uses it to connect with people. The way he talks about communication and collaboration makes me think more analytically about language and what it means to communicate through language. Language is often considered a defining and powerful characteristic of humanity. With the advent of complex language hundreds of thousands of years ago, humans could begin collaborating in groups larger than before, and thus began our species' exponentially increasing ability to communicate with each other. This is a trend that continues today with cell phones, satellites, the internet, etc. As communication technologies improve, the impression can be that communication is getting easier, and in a lot of ways it certainly is. But I think, taking a step back, it's easy to forget that language serves to communicate thoughts, feelings, experiences, and emotions that aren't inherently describable through human language. Therefore, language itself, 
although highly effective and complex, will always fall a little short of communicating everything we want it to. Music, art, poetry, and dance also serve as means of communicating and expressing ourselves, but we think of these separately from language. When we experience one of these art forms, we often ask ourselves, what does it mean? What is the composition trying to say? Or what is the underlying message in this choreography? Conversely with language, we think we know exactly what the language means. But in reality, language is full of metaphor, double meaning, or cultural imaginary. The words we say are often only half the meaning we impart when we speak. My own research is largely centered around understanding discourse and ways of speaking about the world that provide insights into the cultural and historical pressures that influence action. Thinking about language as one means of communication, working in tandem with artistic expression, helps me to analyze how people derive meaning from experience and interaction. At one point in the interview, Kiriakou Spiru said, I think it's a really beautiful thing to acknowledge and to respect that the person next to you is experiencing something slightly different than you. Or maybe he's having different thoughts than you, but you're both sharing the same moment. I wanted to highlight this because I think it's profound and holds true for the entire human experience. We are all sharing the same moment and very probably experiencing it differently. It becomes crucial then to listen to one another and to become attuned to the intricacies of how we communicate whether that be through language, music, art, dance, or something else. So these ideas come and go, and sometimes it will be like a short script, it will be, I don't know, a small exhibition, or like the, the, the score I did for the performance we showed yesterday. I oh yes, tell us you. about that, yes. And that was held at the Literary Society, so yes. you had it parallel. So I did this score, it's called A Beautiful Gaze, mm -hmm. and the idea is that the performer wears a cone on their face, mm -hmm. like this, so there's like a small hole, like, I don't know, 50 centimeters from their nose, mm -hmm. but they cannot see anything else, so all they can see is like this little hole that they move around. Mm -hmm. I made a set of rules the performer had to follow in order to improvise. So I used um, artworks from the exhibition. Mm -hmm. These are three sculptures that were part of the exhibition and I, I told them I'd choose a shape. Mm -hmm. Then I suggested four other works from the exhibition and choose an artwork. And then there are like some directions or instructions about the internal process that he had to follow in order to devise the material. Mm -hmm. So it's not a series of steps mm -hmm. or shapes. It's more like a recipe. Mm -hmm to prepare the conditions for improvisation to happen. And this, the performer, sorry, because I had missed that, the performer is a dancer? Yeah, dancer. but it could be... An actor? It could be an actor or someone yeah. who feels comfortable with movement. Right. I think what I learned from my choreographer friends mm -hmm. is how extraordinary the body is, how wide our perception can be of the world mm -hmm. if we focus on different things. As a musician, I, I, I was trained to listen and I was trained to execute. You know, I have to yeah. execute the score, I have to play this sonata, mm -hmm. I have to, you know, try to achieve what the composer wanted. Mm -hmm. Connecting back to the body, you know, playing music while you feel the muscles work, while you feel your posture, while mm -hmm. you, you explore, <laughs> yeah, you, ex you explore the expressive potential of your body as you play, as you produce sound. Yeah. The impact that has on the audience 
whether they see you or not. Like you can actually hear the difference in a musician's sound when they change their posture or when they, they change their internal process. I think my work the past nine or ten years is, is focusing on, on that, like the, the role of the body in an art form that we often consider immaterial. Yeah, it's so weird. We're, we are very definitely physical beings and there's this whole issue. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting, the mind-body problem. Mm-hmm. And it's not just dancers who who, who embody, because that, that is their instrument. But I was just doing an interview with Siri Hustvet. I don't know. You know her, her writing on neuroscience and mm-hmm. things. And But she, as a novelist as well, is talking about, and lots of novelists have you know, realized this, walking mm-hmm. as a way of releasing the mm-hmm. ideas and mm-hmm. then coming back, uh, you know, so many have shared different ways into it. It's like you're stuck in a problem in a sentence and you just move and then you feel it. And then that's what it is. Mm-hmm. That's the truth of it. And this other thing is getting stuck in mm-hmm. too much reason, too much in the head and not communicating mm-hmm. the body. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that's a way forward for, you know, people achieving more happiness or contentment Mm -hmm. and if the arts can help teach us about that that's wonderful Mm -hmm. so dance music writing curating i mean there's very few and then visual art (laughs) and (laughs) sculpture i mean you must there must be something that you haven't done (laughs) but i am finding hard to think of it (laughs) i'm not a fan of the theater to be honest really (laughs) But you're in Athens. (laughs) Why did you see like so much theater like growing up or what? Um, Maybe I don't. I have maybe it's it's something that I have. I don't like when when I see a a person on stage pretending they're someone else or they go I'm King Lear or I'm Hamlet. Oh, you mean like the older theater? No, no. I love physical theater. Uh I love dance theater. Uh But the traditional theater that most of Contemporary Greek theater is basically like the repertory, you know, it's not, yeah. there's not much innovation in the theater, actually. Yeah. In, in or Greece. they all, yeah, I mean, it's mostly I... about the, the repertory and uh, a traditional way of reciting text. Mm-hmm. And they all have this weird, like, thespian voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's poetry in yeah. that they're saying. Yeah, I'm not, I don't feel, uh, I mean, I don't feel close to that at all. I don't mm-hmm. enjoy watching it. And so, yeah, it's something that never interested me artistically also. Wow. It's, well, I, I enjoy the theater. I don't know if it's the medium that I reach to first, but when it's done well, but then I haven't been exposed to as much, as many performances of ancient mm-hmm. theater, and that couldn't be stifling. Although I was just doing interviews with them. There's a lot of, like, contemporary... You, didn't, you haven't so much gone into the contemporary interpretations of ancient Greek theater. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I don't like the convention of the theater. Like, clearly recited text, people uh, playing roles, you know, like there's this story that needs to be understood by everyone. Mm -hmm. So there there are conventions in the theater that cannot be broken, even if Mm -hmm. you change the costume or you change the music. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's what I feel alienated by. And do you enjoy I, film? I enjoy abstract film. <laughs> oh my God. I enjoy abstract theater. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I prefer, I mean, as an audience member, I yes. prefer to be left to create my own uh, mm-hmm. interpretation. Mm-hmm. 
Of course, I appreciate well-prepared theatrical performance. Mm-hmm. I appreciate like the, the beauty of a script, of a play. But artistically, it was something that never really interested me to go into theater. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done music for a couple of uh, theatrical plays. Yeah. I enjoyed the process, but still I, I was struggling with the importance of the text. Mm-hmm. Like this dialogue that had to be that had to be expressed that had to be part of it the whole thing it's interesting that yeah the difference between written i mean you obviously enjoy writing a lot <laughs> and so between writing for the page and writing for the voice and often i think you know that's also down to the skill of the actor whether that works because it can work so well on the page you know but how they interpret it Mm. Yeah, sometimes I have spoken to, you know, novelists and essayists who just haven't gotten into the theater as well because they have so much control on this level. Mm. I think that too, you just, you hear it in your ear Mm. and then someone else says it and it can (laughs) be so far away. But I mean, then others enjoy that. Others enjoy that, like, oh, you take it someplace else. Mm -hmm, My mm -hmm. job is done. So do you want to, would you like to read some of your writing? Sure. So this is the catalog of the second exhibition I curated, which Mm -hmm. was in 2018. This exhibition was uh, called The Vision of St. Void. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I mean, in Christian lore, you know, Mm -hmm. there's always like this, some saint that has a vision or an angel comes or there's like this supernatural encounter Mm -hmm. that only saints can have. And I was, yeah, I imagined this, I don't know, religious, devout person called Saint Void who is having these visions on an island somewhere. This is not really a catalogue for the exhibition. It's more like a series of poetic texts that correspond to the works of the exhibition. Mm -hmm. So in this booklet you won't find any biographical information about the artist, you will not find any theoretical text about the concept of the exhibition. It's like a small literary exercise inspired by the works. I can read this poem, which was also part of the exhibition. We put it on on the wall next to the entrance. I wish I could see inside you like the seer examines remains. To see inside you must be like having dreams in blue. Next to the sea, the tents a necessity at night. Stumbling on sea turtles crawling out to weep, I wander with a flashlight and an open pocket knife in shoes so soft they don't leave a trace. So many open mouths in the choirs of fishes yet none can sing on my behalf. Soon we will be breathless under the moon. All the names we memorized are lost. When I don't know how to read or write, what sound do two grains of sand make when they collide? In the distance, beyond the marshes, the rain. My mother has been sending me away for years. I'm putting pebbles in my mouth. I'm learning new words like this every day. But you see there's like this this rhythm. People tell me that they can tell from my poet I'm a musician. Oh yes, there's there's very clear rhythms and Mm. images. And it's that simplicity, not this essential quality Mm. is difficult for people, Mm -hmm. you know? The clarity, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm talking with uh, other people who write poetry as yes. well, and it's always different with each person. Yes. Some people just write it on the page and uh-huh. it's done. For me, it's, uh, to write a poem, it's like a distillation process. Uh-huh. Like I collect material, I fill pages and pages and pages, uh-huh. and then I edit that, and then I edit that again, and it sort of comes, it comes smaller and smaller and smaller until I have like the very essence of it. Uh-huh. And sometimes I will leave it and then I will edit again after a few months. Uh-huh. So I'm working and reworking my texts until I achieve that kind of, of simplicity and uh, mm-hmm. that, that essence. Each artwork in the exhibition, it's like an episode in the life of St. Void. Mm-hmm. So at some point he encounters darkness, then he encounters light, then he discovers something about himself. Then he encounters a volcano. So it's always like different episodes that relate to the artworks. What I, I like in this type of form is to travel inside mm. with a little form and as music with a time of silence mm. and time of uh, rhythm mm-hmm. with image. And yeah, mm. the, the graphic designer who designed mm-hmm. it, she really wanted to incorporate these uh, white spaces. Mm to create a different kind of rhythm as you as you go through it. And and I like also that there are the responses or that it's an um, imaginative response to mm-hmm. the artworks or they might have preceded the artwork. I mean, you might have chosen, you might have written something and then chosen um, the artwork. The, no, the texts were written after I chose the artworks. Yeah, I really I really like that because uh, we're doing in the our projection elements, things like that, pairing because Although I like, as you said, there's a difference. There's like an academic response mm-hmm. where you, the curator ima- explains the artist to you even though the artist is still alive yeah. or, or maybe dead and can't defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's different. It's interesting, but it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily waken my imagination. Mm-hmm. And that's why sometimes, I don't know about you, but when you go through an exhibition, sometimes I do read the text, but sometimes I don't. And I'll, I'll just take in the images because I know I can get that in the book form later, mm-hmm. but this really, it's the, the text is, is part of the artwork. That's nice. Yes, that's exactly the concept. Mm-hmm. And also becomes part of my whole like, uh, contradiction yeah. as an yeah. artist curator. I think that my texts are like one more work in the exhibition. So th- yeah. they stand next to the works mm-hmm. of the other artists mm-hmm. and they're not there to, to explain. Mm-hmm. And even in, in this one, which is a very long essay mm-hmm. about the whole philosophy and concept and the politics of mm-hmm. labor. And yeah, well, that's a, something else. Yeah. But then it's, again, it's standing next to them and mm-hmm. it's, it's not there to, to explain the mystery or to teach. Mm-hmm. I think art, the artists who work with me really appreciate that. that mm-hmm. It's sort of like I'm, I'm presenting the work, mm-hmm. but then I am leaving it open to whomever to, to interpret. And what do you think, oh, because you mentioned teaching, what do you think of art as an education vehicle? Mm-hmm. No, I think it's very important, actually. Mm-hmm. Again, this uh, opinion comes from my, from my days in, in dance theatre. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've participated in a few projects with the students and the teenagers. Mm-hmm. I think it's really essential for education, for the arts to be part of the curriculum and mm-hmm. the arts to be part of people's lives, even when they're not like labeled as educational, mm-hmm. 
the whole process of creating and collaborating and problem solving, all these things that are involved in making a, a new work or preparing a performance or preparing a concert, these are processes that build very essential skills. It was very, very evident in the work with the teenagers, like mm-hmm. to see a teenager struggling to learn their work, the words, you know, Romeo and Juliet, for example, oh, yes. you know, and uh, everyone was learning their lines and they're learning the, their cues uh-huh. and uh, being part of a production, like mm-hmm. everyone to know like they have a responsibility, they, they learn to collaborate, they learn mm-hmm. to create together, mm-hmm. they learn other people's uh, boundaries you know Mm -hmm. and how much they have to push or be patient so all these skills are human skills Mm -hmm. they're not just art skills Mm -hmm. and uh, these you can carry into your family you can carry back into your work workspace work environment so yeah I think not not necessarily to teach people art history but we need to make art part of their lives so that they can develop a different skill set that makes us, you know, communicate better, understand each other better, you know, develop empathy, develop patience. Some people tell me that when I write a review for an exhibition, I always make it look great. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're always you're already collaborating with them, even without. No, even if it's no. another curator's, yeah. like, or I go to a museum and I see an exhibition and I write a review uh-huh. for a magazine. Yeah. And then friends send me messages like, oh, I didn't see that. Oh, but you made the show look so good. <laughs> I think this comes from my experience as an artist. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I try to find something good in yes, everything. that's what I feel too. I will really try to find something to say I will, uh, every time. Mm-hmm. And it's the, what I call the yes and uh, process. Uh, instead of no but. So, yeah. <laughs> So it's like, it's that, yes, and mm-hmm. you can say something about it. Mm-hmm. And then you can make something useful out of it. Uh-huh. Although you might not like its aesthetic, mm-hmm. you might not like its technique, you mm-hmm. might not like the person because, I don't know, he's a misogynist artist or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, yeah there, there's always something uh, to say. And I think if people learn that skill or mm-hmm. they learn to understand their world in those terms, yeah, they become better people. Yeah, I think that's so important. And it's also the joy of making things mm. because artists never feel like they're working, basically. And if you can carry that joy in whatever activity mm. you have, if other people can experience that, I think that's mm. so important too. And I guess for I guess for closing on it, I'm thinking of you're, you're so obsessive about paper and mm. I'm obsessive too about making <laughs> things, old-fashioned skills like oil painting, you know, making music, these things, the the physical body but I'm thinking about the future and mm-hmm. how technology has changed the way we communicate with ourselves and with our imaginations what are your hopes for the future regarding that and your concerns and the kind of world we're living our children wow well let me start from the new technologies and communication point I mean personally I'm obsessed with paper because it's something very tactile and it, it's an object, like a book or a publication is an object. I think I really have a fetish for, for paper, for, for printed matter, possibly because of my training as a pianist and having to deal every day with printed pages of notes and scores and the huge collections of uh, notation that accumulated over the years in the conservatory. 
and uh, of course the my mother's library and my own collection of children's books so i i grew up surrounded by these pages full of information yeah i, I feel very attached to to books uh, to objects when you can actually gift this book or the feeling you have when you enter a library or a bookshop like this accumulated knowledge or information that you're surrounded by walls covered with pages and pages uh-huh. and uh, i remember one time we went with my sister into a bookshop mm-hmm. and i was really overwhelmed because like i told her like i know that the book that's going to change my life is in here but i don't know which one it is <laughs> so there's this like a treasure hunt <laughs> yeah it's, it's like full of treasures And also, I'm a material person in the sense that I, I like objects. I like to be surrounded by objects, and I enjoy the expressiveness of matter and the fact that it occupies space that you live with an object. Yeah, for me, it's like a very essential part of of my life and how I live my life and how I communicate with others mm-hmm. and how I share my experience with others. When I made the the und map, for example, it, it had to be a publication in print and not a digital publication, because suddenly you have this little map that is made in Athens. It's printed in Athens, so you take a piece of Athens with you when you go back home. Yeah. Or when I send this to friends abroad or to journalists, curators abroad, this piece of Athens arrives in in their mail. Yeah. So it, it has a different emotional value, I think, than mm. uh, than something digital. As for the um, social media and digital communications, I think it, it's causing me personally a, a very big problem. I feel distracted all the time. I feel that experiences are like being chopped up into smaller pieces. Mm. So you have these long feeds of uh, stimuli that they're like endless. And your communication with people or your experience of the world becomes fragmented, mm-hmm. and there's like little instances and mm-hmm. here and there. And then you switch to Instagram and there's more. And then you switch to Twitter and there's more. Yeah. So it's like this endless like kaleidoscope of things that they, they really disorient the mind. So I think for me, the, the solution I found for myself is to go back to to old-fashioned. Uh, ways of publishing or distributing information or making making creative things, and that's why I'm I'm so fascinated with books and book fairs and uh, putting things in paper. Yeah, it, it's because they're objects. I also find myself sometimes I sit down to read like an article in a magazine, mm-hmm. and I stop halfway through because my mind wanders somewhere else. Like yes. we're losing our focus and our skill to read uh, yeah. through like a longer text. I think the people that I know who read the most are academics because it's yeah. part of their work. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, I don't know that many people who go like once a week to the bookshop to buy new books. Well, you certainly know a number of writers as well mm. that are. Yeah, I mean, I do in my world, and I do know quite a few like that, and I'm like that. And I, I love being able to absorb myself in longer text because I've always felt, I mean, even though literature has always been so important to me, but I always felt that that's how I would know what I was thinking by writing and reading. So it's just something quite short would give me. It's good sometimes for an essence, but it's so unclear to tell a life or to tell an experience. Mm-hmm. You do need more. Mm. 
and, and much more. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's yeah. It can be it can be read so many ways. Well, thank you so much for adding your voice to the creative process, to the many creative processes that you're involved <laughs> in, for helping um, broaden our understanding of these disciplines, our appreciation of them, and we look forward to the many iterations of your talents across music, visual arts, curation. I'm sk- I'm missing some the the multiple disciplines that you're involved in. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Sophia Luongo. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.